Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We're here to catch you up on all things health and wellness. Let's get into it. There's an ancient tradition that's getting a fresh look from researchers. Fasting. You might have heard of plans like the 5-2 diet or time-restricted eating, where you fast for a set number of hours every day. It seems simple, though not easy. You stop eating completely, or almost, for a certain amount of time. Now, fasting isn't new. It's part of just about every major religious tradition like Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, and Judaism. But does it make you healthier? And is it safe? Here's what you should know. First, let's talk about the benefits. There's research showing that certain types of fasting may help improve your cholesterol, blood pressure, and blood sugar levels, and how well your body uses insulin. And surprise, it's not all about what you eat, but when. The idea is that your circadian rhythm, that's your body's internal clock, works better when you don't eat all the time. Now, some of this research has been done mostly in animals so far, but scientists are studying what it does for people. So, is it safe? That depends on who you are. Fasting for a short time isn't likely to hurt you if you're a healthy adult, whether your weight is normal or if you're heavier. Still, your body needs good nutrition and fuel to thrive. So make sure to talk to your doctor before you try fasting, especially if you have health problems or take any kind of medication. If you're pregnant, breastfeeding, or you've had an eating disorder, you should avoid fasting of any kind. And kids and teens shouldn't do it either. So what about if you have diabetes? Well, studies show that fasting might help people with diabetes or prediabetes control their blood sugar, improve their insulin sensitivity, and lose weight. But if you have either of these conditions, it's very important to talk to your doctor before you make any changes to your medication, your insulin use, or your eating habits. Okay, so how does it work? Intermittent fasting is an on-off type of fasting. There are three main kinds that doctors have studied and that people have used to lose weight and improve their health. There's time-restricted feeding, alternate day fasting, and modified fasting. So let's go through each of those. Time-restricted feeding means you do all your eating in one stretch of the day, often around 8 to 12 hours, and then you fast for the rest of the day. For instance, you finish dinner by 8 p.m., and you don't eat again until 8 a.m. for a 12-hour fast. If you wait until noon for lunch, you've fasted for 16 hours. Then there's alternate day fasting. That means you don't eat at all for a full 24 hours. After that, you get one or more feast days when you can eat as much as you want. There's very little research on this type of fasting, and while it can lead to weight loss and improve your health, it may be hard to stick to it over the long term. Finally, there's modified fasting. That lets you eat around 20 to 25% of your normal energy needs on scheduled fast days, just enough to remind you what you're missing. This includes the 5-2 diet. That's when you have two days a week, not in a row, where you fast for 24 hours except for a light meal. On the other five days of the week, you can eat whatever you want. Whatever type of fasting you try, yes, you'll be hungry, at least in the beginning. But after a few days, the hunger usually gets better. Fasting is different from dieting in that it's not about trimming calories or avoiding certain types of food every day. When you're not fasting, you can eat the food you normally would. Of course, quality still counts. You shouldn't load up on french fries and donuts. But studies seem to show that your health changes for the better when you fast, even if your diet stays the same. Still, you should focus on getting enough fruits, veggies, lean protein, and whole grains, too. 
You're scrolling online and you see something like this. Scientists find cure for Alzheimer's in mice. Or a daily glass of wine helps your heart. Followed by a story about how alcohol harms your long-term health. There's no shortage of health news from many sources out there. How do you know what to trust and how it applies to you? We wanted to spend a little time talking about what makes a good health news story. How can you tell real good coverage from clickbait? Valerie Bashida, WebMD's Director of News and Special Reports, is here to talk it over. Hey, Valerie, welcome. Hi, thanks, Gary. What are some of the biggest issues or mistakes that you see when you look at a lot of the health news that's just sort of out there on the internet? Well, it really gets complicated because the mistakes can start first with the way the study itself is done. There's a doctor who's made a name for calling out bad science. His name is Dr. Ben Goldacre, and he's a British uh, doctor. And he gave a TED Talk about this, and he said there's more than half a million ways researchers can manipulate evidence. Wow. So <laughs> that's one issue there. Then the way it can be promoted is sometimes wrong, or they'll exaggerate certain things. And then the way journalists cover it might exaggerate things to make it more clickbaity, or they may not understand. So there's multiple areas or multiple places where things can go wrong. I think one of the biggest problems is incorrectly characterizing the amount of risk. Now, you referenced the alcohol study, and yes. that's a case where the you heard headlines like, no amount of alcohol is safe, and everyone's freaking out, Everyone right? panics Everyone's panicking, right. <laughs> but if you really looked at the study, it was at the highest amounts of alcohol that the real risk was there. The small amounts, there really wasn't much more risk, if anything. So it's really understanding what that risk means. And there were a lot of, you heard a lot of doctors pushing back on that study because they were upset the way it was characterized. So the best stories will really help you understand that, and they'll help you say, what's the real risk here? Another mistake is knowing where the study comes from, making sure it comes from a peer-reviewed journal. That means that a group of peers who understand the subject analyzed the study before it was published and found it to be valid. Now, that's not always a guarantee because some studies that there are many studies retracted even after they get published in peer-reviewed journals. I wouldn't say many, but there are some. But it, it does help at least add some level, level of credibility because experts have looked at it. Another big issue is exaggerating early results. And this often happens if something is found in mice or cells in a lab or maybe a small group of people. All of a sudden, this translates to everybody. But that's not true yet. It really has to undergo much more testing. Here's a scenario. You'll see a big, splashy headline about finding a cure for Alzheimer's or diabetes or something like that. But you read a little closer, and the findings came from a study of mice or even just cells in a lab does that change the way you think about the findings from that study? Definitely. I mean, we would have cured cancer by now if we just had findings from mice, right? Right. And the reason they use mice, obviously, is because we don't want to test things on humans that could be harmful. And they are biologically similar to humans, but they're not people. So many times things work in mice and they don't work in people. Sometimes they do. For example, immunotherapy drugs, we've been hearing a lot about those. They, of course, they were first tested in mice, as many drugs are. Mm -hmm. And they've proven to be, you know, really great drugs so far for some people. But many other things have not panned out. You have to be really careful and report that in the proper context that, yes, it's interesting, it's a finding, but it's really early and it's got to through all the different kinds of testing before we can make any conclusions about it. A lot of people see so many headlines that contradict, like we were talking about with some of the alcohol stories. 
or coffee is bad for you and then it's good for you or, you know, those kinds of things. That makes it look like scientists or the media just can't get it right. But is that really what's going on? A lot of researchers and doctors have been talking with about nutrition studies and there's really a lot of problems with the way they are conducted. In fact, there was uh, one researcher who did a study in 2012 that asked the question, is everything we eat associated with cancer? And he <laughs> selected 50 recipes from a cookbook and discovered that 80% of the ingredients were linked to either an increased or decreased risk of cancer in studies. What's causing that? Well, first of all, um, nutrition studies are susceptible to something they call data dredging, and that's basically a way of cherry-picking data that agrees with your findings. If you want to find that low carb is good for you, you'll look for some data or you might that will support your hypothesis. Nutrition studies are often based on people's recollections of things because they might do surveys or they might go back and look at data of surveys people have taken. And we all know our memories are not great, right? Right. So there's always a bit of a weakness there. Another thing is that correlation is not causation. So just because people who are healthier may eat leafy greens doesn't necessarily mean the leafy greens cause them to be healthier. They could be exercising. They could not smoke. You know, there are many things. They could have better health insurance. You know, there's many, many things that could cause something, not just you can't just say, oh, because of this, it caused that. One way to know, like for nutrition studies, a better way to look at them is to look for something called a meta-analysis or a review of studies. These are studies that take, they'll look at all the nutrition studies or all the studies on a topic, say low-carb diets, and they'll pick the ones that look like they were conducted the best and then analyze them and find what the results are when you analyze all of them together. So it gives you a better picture and rules out any bias that a researcher might have had. I know we've talked about studies of mice and not people. We've talked about uh, looking for peer-reviewed journals versus other sources. And we've talked about looking for like meta-analyses of many studies. Are there other things that you typically look for in, in research? Another type of study to look for is called a randomized controlled trial. That's and kind then, of the gold standard. It's considered the gold standard. And this is where you take a group of people and one group gets the treatment or is studied for one thing and then the other group is not, doesn't get the treatment. So that's most often used in drug trials or sometimes they might compare it to another treatment. So if they haven't done that, then it's not considered to be as good of a study. And that's the way to really tease out whether the effects you're seeing are from the treatment itself or something else that could be going exactly, on. Exactly, exactly. And getting back to study size, again, it's if it's only in a small group of people, you really need to make sure that can translate to a larger group. So that's another tip off. And another thing you as a reader can do is look at the study yourself or the story and see, does it really explain what this means? For instance, a cancer treatment might get approved and it says, well, it extended life. But how much did it really extend life? Was it two months? Was it two years? What does the data really show? And that can help you understand how significant this is as well. Well, that's a lot of great information to help people parse through what they're seeing online every day. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Used to be you bought a pumpkin sometime in late October, carved it into a jack-o'-lantern and put it on your porch for Halloween night. Then about a month later, your aunt baked one into a pie for Thanksgiving. These days, as coffee lovers know, pumpkins are one of the earliest signs of fall. Pumpkin spice lattes and everything else pumpkin spice, are now hitting the shelves in early September. But there's way more to pumpkins than cute decorations, sugary desserts, and spicy drinks, and soaps, and yogurt, and air freshener, and, well, you get the idea. Turns out, pumpkins are high in fiber, low in calories, and packed with nutrients. Like their orange cousins, carrots and sweet potatoes, pumpkins are rich in beta-carotene, 
That's an antioxidant that your body changes into vitamin A. Just one cup of pumpkin gives you 200% of your recommended daily vitamin A intake. It'll keep your eyes healthy and help you see more clearly, especially in low-light conditions. And it can help fight the signs of aging on your skin. Vitamin A can also lower your risk of lung and prostate cancer. This is a benefit that only comes from vitamin A in your food. You can't get it from supplements. Pumpkins are also packed with potassium, which can lower your blood pressure, boost your bone health, and also cut your risk of certain kinds of cancer, like lung or prostate cancer. And if you're a fan of roasted pumpkin seeds, you're in luck. They can raise your good cholesterol and help you sleep. So next time you're at the grocery store or farmer's market, grab a real pumpkin for more than a holiday decoration. They're great roasted as soups or even pureed into hummus. And also, this Halloween, what if you spot a teal pumpkin on someone's doorstep? It's no trick. It means that house offers non-food treats, like glow sticks or small toys, for trick-or-treaters who have food allergies. To learn more about what makes pumpkins so great, check out the link in our show notes. Chances are, you've heard about probiotics. They're the, quote, good bacteria that we either get from food or, more likely these days, take as supplements. The goal is to boost the ranks of the billions of good bacteria that should live in our guts, but get wiped out by things like a bad diet or medications. In fact, your doctor may even tell you to take them when she prescribes antibiotics for you. Instead of making us sick like many of their germ cousins, probiotics keep our digestive systems running like they're supposed to. It sounds like a no-lose situation, right? Well, maybe not. Some new studies that made major headlines this fall raised questions about probiotics. Researchers in Israel found that while probiotics work just fine for some people, other people's bodies kick them right out. In a second study, the same team found that if you take them with antibiotics, it may take longer for your gut bacteria to return to normal. A third U.S. study found that by boosting bacteria in your small intestine, probiotics may actually cause digestive problems and brain fog. So we're turning to WebMD's chief medical editor, Dr. Michael Smith, to find out a little more about what probiotics can and can't do for us. Welcome back, Dr. Smith. Great to be here. Let's start with some probiotics 101. What are these and what do they do for us? Well, you mentioned probiotics are bacteria. We call them good bacteria because they're essentially harmless. They naturally live in our digestive systems. And they're actually a big component of our immune systems. In the world of supplements, probiotics have actually been decently studied, right? No supplement has been really well studied, but probiotics are better off than most. Mm -hmm. And what we know so far is that they have been shown to have some benefit for people with irritable bowel syndrome, constipation, people with inflammatory bowel disease like ulcerative colitis, infectious causes like you've probably heard of traveler's diarrhea, and possibly diarrhea that can come after taking antibiotics. So the research there is not particularly consistent. So most of the time, the benefits we see have to do with the digestive system. But we've even seen some very early preliminary studies showing it might have some benefit with skin conditions like eczema, which we know eczema is also related to the, the immune system. Urinary and vaginal health, particularly helping to prevent vaginal yeast infections or even possibly improving allergies and colds. Now for those last few things, again, very early research, so we need to know much more before we would ever really recommend them for those. But it shows that there is certainly some effect going on with probiotics in the body. 
So lots of potentially good outcomes there. That's right. For probiotics. So in light of these new studies, what do these results really mean? Are probiotics really like all hype and no action or are they even bad for us in some cases? Yeah. So let's look at the detail of these studies just briefly. First of all, they're all small. Now, so were the other studies looking at IBS, et cetera. But it just means we're getting a very small snapshot of what might be going on. So the first study was really only 25 people. And essentially, it boiled down to this. There were people that they determined when they were given probiotics, the probiotics were there and they were able to do their thing. They called those people persisters. The other people, when they tested them after having given them probiotics, the probiotics just weren't there. They had, their bodies had expelled them. They called them resistors. So really all this points to is what we now know as personalized medicine. Mm-hmm. Not one treatment is going to be right for everyone. And that's true for anything. And that's why we really want to get down to the nitty gritty of the treatments that are best for a particular person. Now, these researchers say they can look at your microbiome, which is the, the bacteria that normally live in your gut and your genes and actually determine if you're going to respond to probiotics. Not like you can go to your doctor and have that happen, though, right? So that's much further down the road. But again, it really points to the fact that probiotics will help some people and may not help other people. When you look at the second study, looking at people who took probiotics after taking antibiotics to see if it could help with that, again, they found that For some people, it actually took four weeks for your bacteria in your gut to get back to normal. They found that to be true whether or not you took probiotics. Essentially, probiotics in some people did not really seem to have much, if any, effect. Now, the one treatment that did seem to help is something we call fecal transplant, right? It's kind of what it sounds like. You're taking Mm -hmm. the stool from a healthy person transplanting it into the colon of a sick person. Those people actually got better a lot more quickly. You're not going to go to your doctor and get a fecal transplant after taking antibiotics, right? right? But it just shows, yeah, (laughs) totally. So, but it just shows that again, probiotics may or may not work in everybody. It really boils down to that. Is there any reason not to try probiotics? For most people, taking probiotics is completely harmless with no side effects. Some people do have allergies to some of the components. You know, they may get a little gas and bloating that typically goes away in a few days. But for certain people with a weakened immune system, people who are critically ill, people after surgery who also have a weakened immune system, taking probiotics may actually increase your risk of infection. So obviously, if you're really ill, talk to your doctor. I mean, really, with probiotics, you should always talk to your doctor. But certainly, if you're really ill... Talk to your doctor before you take anything, especially something that could be affecting your immune system, like probiotics. Certainly. If somebody wanted to try probiotics, what are some ways that they could take them? Obviously, there's supplements, but what are some of the other routes? Pretty much any time food is an option, in my opinion, food is your best option. Probiotics are not found widespread in food, but they're actually found in fermented foods. Things like yogurt, sauerkraut, miso soup, uh, kefir, you know, the fermented drinks, sour bread, sourdough bread, even sourdough pickles. But for people who don't like those and they want to get their supplements, their probiotics or a supplement, they come in a wide variety. Now, the thing is about probiotics in particular is for the bacteria to have any beneficial effect, they have to be alive. You don't necessarily know when you take a probiotic supplement if the bacteria are actually alive. So you might just be taking an inactive pill. 
And unfortunately, there's no great way for you to know that. So, you know, do your research, try to find a good brand, look for brands that they, some of them do have third party seals that have verified at least the quality of the supplement. Those are kind of few and far between, but you can at least do a little bit of research and help determine if at least you're getting a hopefully higher quality probiotic supplement where the bacteria are actually alive. If you are trying to get your probiotics through food, are there any phrases on the label or anything? You know, you hear a lot about live and active cultures in yogurt, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, yogurt, particularly, you may see live active cultures written on the label. And there you know that you're actually getting live probiotics. A lot of those foods like sauerkraut, et cetera, won't necessarily have that on there. But just know that from the fermentation process, the probiotics at least were there at some point. But unfortunately, just like with supplements, other than those few foods that might have that live active cultures label on them, it's not a great way to know if those bacteria are still thriving. The food for probiotics, like what do those bacteria eat? They eat fiber. So if you eat a high fiber diet, you're going to naturally increase the quality and the quantity of the probiotics that naturally live in your gut. So eat a good, healthy diet full of fruits and vegetables and high fiber and lean meats, everything that we always know. And that's your best way to keep your probiotics in good shape as well as your, you know, obviously your health in general. That's great advice as usual. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. My pleasure. Now our tweak of the week. Are you deep into a great audiobook or hooked on a fascinating podcast like this one, for example? This week, try to listen only when you're exercising. That way, you have to move to get your fix or find out what happens next. It can be great motivation to get in the 30 minutes of exercise that you need every day. So put on your headphones and tune in while you go for a walk, jog, or tackle some household chores or yard work. And watch your workouts fly by while you catch up on episodes of Health Now. Thanks again to all of our guests and to you for joining us this week. Talk to you next time. 